This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Philippe Tortel. Welcome, Philippe. Now, the Quarantine Conversations podcast series aims to meet scientists at various stages in their academic studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a researcher, a hobbyist? Uh, Where do you fall on that spectrum? I'm a full professor here in the department and have been employed as a faculty member for almost 20 years now. So I I guess that puts me on the, uh, let's say, the second half of my career. (laughs) Excellent. And um, so you're an oceanographer. Uh, How would you define an oceanographer uh, to people? An oceanographer is someone that is interested in studying the ocean as a system of interacting parts and and maybe uh, a good thing to explain that is to say something about the difference between, say, a marine biologist and an oceanographer. A marine biologist is, is actually what most people think of when you describe yourself as an oceanographer. A marine biologist would be someone who studies the biology of creatures that live in the ocean, like fish or tuna or whales or crabs, for that matter. Whereas an oceanographer takes uh, maybe a slightly different approach, a higher level view of the ocean as a system comprised of many, many different interacting parts, and that would include studying the physics of ocean currents and circulation, but also chemical reactions in the ocean and the role of various biological processes like photosynthesis and respiration in mixing and, and driving reactions of, of chemicals. Not, sorry, not mixing, biology is not mixing the ocean, but biology is responding to physical mixing processes that churn up nutrients and affect the distribution of gases and so on. Okay. That's a really good definition. Thank you. And um, actually, I could say, sorry, you know, the word like a geographer's or the, the, the end of the word, f- the fur part is basically the describer of. So an oceanographer is someone who describes the ocean. Oh, oh it's really succinct <laughs> and elegant. Uh, how did you get into oceanography? I, uh, I, I used to, it's, it's very cliche, honestly, but I used to watch these Jacques Cousteau specials on television. I remember watching them as early as five or six and was rather fascinated by this notion of a whole underwater world that was largely invisible to the eye when seen from above. And the, and the notion that one, one could experience a third dimension, the dimension of depth of moving up and down through space as opposed to just side to side. And I never, uh, never grew up on the coast, but I had the opportunities to spend time in the ocean when I was a kid, and I was always just really quite interested in that. When I went to um, to university, I started in biology, and uh, I was in Montreal at the time, and and they didn't really have so much of a group of oceanographers, but they had a lot of freshwater biologists. So I actually spent more time studying lakes and rivers, but I found that. As interesting as it was, it seemed to me that every lake and every river system had, had its own little characteristics, and you could go and learn everything there was to learn about a particular lake, but then you would move a few kilometers down the road, and there'd be a different lake that operated in a totally different way, or at least so it seemed to me at the time. And the appeal of oceanography was that you could study these vast expanses of Earth's surface, and, and again, so it seemed to me at the time, make more general pronouncements 
about large swaths of, of these larger ecosystems. Interesting. Oh, well, hopefully um, you'll, be, you'll inspire the next generation of oceanographers, just like uh, Jacques Cousteau inspired you. Mm -hmm. um, have you made any major discoveries or anything that you're really proud of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in our fields, uh, we, we don't tend to think about, uh, at least maybe I don't, maybe my horizons are too small, but we don't tend to think about discoveries on the order of life-changing um, discoveries and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think in terms of, of the contributions that I've made, I feel that there's a few areas where over time the work that we've done has changed the way pe people think about the ocean. One of the one of the things that we've been doing for quite a few years now is developing some scientific instruments that can be used on ships to really increase people's capability to make measurements of some pretty basic ocean properties like dissolved gases and optical properties in the ocean. And by optical properties, I mean the way that light is absorbed and scattered off of particles. And by developing some instruments that allow us to do that easily on ships with a high resolution, which is to say making measurements continuously all the time in a robotic or autonomous system, we've really helped to increase the level of detail that we now understand about the distribution, for example, of carbon dioxide in the surface ocean or oxygen or methane or nitrous oxide. And by having a very, very high density of measurements through these automated systems, we now have a much better understanding of the spatial and the, and the temporal variability of things like oxygen and carbon dioxide, and we've been used that, we've been able to use that to make some inferences about the, the factors that influence biological production and, and photosynthesis, for example, because all of these gases and these optical properties can be used as indirect measures of the activity of biological life in the ocean. Mm. In the case of photosynthesis, for example, we can measure the accumulation of oxygen in the surface ocean because oxygen is a, one of the primary products of photosynthesis or we can measure the consumption of the, what we would call the drawdown of co2 also as an indirect measure of photosynthesis and traditionally a few decades ago to measure photosynthesis in the ocean required pretty laborious time-consuming and and rather complex experiments where you would have to put seawater into a bottle and add all these different things. Often you use radioactive carbon. So they were pretty challenging experiments. And you could make the measurements, but you couldn't make very many of them. So if you went out on a ship for about a month, you know, you might make 25, 30, 40 different measurements. With, with these techniques that we and others have deployed, you could now come back from a ship after a month and have tens of thousands of individual point measurements of oxygen that you could use to get much, much greater insight into the distribution of photosynthesis in the surface ocean. So that's one example, I think, where we've had some, uh, some impact on the field. Oh, wow, that must really uh, increase the amount of information that you're able to take in. Yes. Yeah, well, excellent. Um, could you briefly explain, um, are, are you doing current research? And if so, what are you researching? Yeah, I'm working on a few different things uh, I, with some talented students and some postdocs. There's quite a range of projects. One of them looks at the relationship between sockeye salmon productivity and the distribution of phytoplankton biomass. And phytoplankton are the single-celled microscopic algae that are the base of the ocean food chain. And using satellite-based observations, what we would call remote sensing, 
we have access to about 20 years of observations of, of what we call ocean color, which is literally the color of the ocean, which can be taken as an estimate of the quantity of phytoplankton in the water. The phytoplankton, just like plants that you might have at home, have a typical green, sometimes it's more brownish, but they have these colors that derive from the pigments that they use to absorb light energy from the sun. And when we have a large accumulation of phytoplankton, we can actually see the accumulation of those pigments in terms of the color of the surface ocean. So satellites have enabled us to look at ocean color over very, very large scales, tens and hundreds of thousands of kilometer scales. And uh, we've done, are currently working on an analysis to couple the distribution of phytoplankton across the Northeast uh, Pacific against uh, the productivity of salmon. And we found some interesting insights into which areas of the subarctic Pacific are particularly important for determining sockeye salmon survival and then return rates back to the rivers. So that's one thing we're working on. We're doing a lot of work also on the moment and still developing shipboard sensors for oxygen and nitrogen and argon measurements to infer photosynthesis, as I've said. And we're also using optical properties based on fluorescence, which is the emission of light, emission of photons from chlorophyll molecules, these photosynthetic pigments, as another metric of photosynthesis and some other biological properties associated with, with photosynthesis. It's so strange to think of an oceanographer using satellites um, and, and being so high-tech like that, but then also being so low-tech as to be looking at, at color um, and driving important scientific... Yeah, so satellite, it's not, an, it's not an exaggeration to say that satellites have completely revolutionized oceanography. And at the same time, other autonomous sensors that are deployed in seawater, free drifting or sometimes self-propelled, it's been, I would say, probably... 25 years now that this technology has profoundly shifted our ability to observe the ocean. If we depended only on individual research expedition on ships to collect information about the ocean, it would be a very, very difficult task just simply because of the scale, the enormity of the ocean. And we just could not simply sample at the level of detail and the scale needed to understand global processes. Great. Uh, do you get out into the field very often? Um, I often hear that there's some really crazy field stories out there. So Yeah, I, uh, I go less now than I used to. When I was a student, I used to go a lot more. Uh, but typically, I'll go for maybe three weeks every year. Maybe I'll skip a year every now and then. I was, I was up last year for about a month. I was supposed to be on a ship right now, actually. But that was postponed, perhaps indefinitely, because of the, um, the COVID-19 situation. But... Uh, I, I do hope to go at least uh, once a year. I'd like to go to see with my students and take the, take the instruments, see how everything's working. Great. Uh, has anything crazy ever happened out in the field or anything um, bizarre? I've been to some pretty, um, pretty, pretty far-flung places. One of, the, one of the memories I have of, of something weird, sort of twilight zone-y happening was being out in the subarctic Pacific, which is basically maybe about 1,500 kilometers due west of Vancouver Island, right in the middle of what we call the Gulf of Alaska, and sending down some sampling equipment. It was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and we sent these bottles down to about 3 kilometers below the surface, so 3,000 meters. And when the stuff came up, the entire sampling bottle rig, which was about, I don't know, maybe two or three meters in diameter. So quite a large piece of equipment came up and it was completely coated in this weird gelat 
cretinous thing. It was like it would, it was like it was embraced by an alien. It was like this weird kind of creature from the depth thing that was uh, enveloping these bottles. It was quite bizarre. I also remember sampling on a ship a few months after the uh, Fukushima nuclear accidents and tsunami. And we saw, again, thousands of kilometers offshore, we saw a screen door floating in the surface ocean that I guess had been ripped off somewhere in Japan and had drifted across the Pacific Ocean. I've seen owls in the middle of the ocean, which is very strange. Um, so yeah, you see these um, interesting things sometimes when you're far from land. Oh, wow. Yeah, those would be very unnerving, I, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think your research is uh, important in a real-world sense? Well, there's a, there's a number of applications. The, the project that I mentioned to you regarding sockeye salmon productivity is, is really important because it's going to give forecasters the ability to better predict salmon returns on an annual basis. And, and there are models, mathematical models that exist to predict the number of salmon that will come back to, say, the Fraser River, for example, based on a number of variables. And the work that we've done has shown that the incorporation of some of the satellite data significantly improves the predictive ability of these algorithms. So that's a tool that fisheries managers at Fisheries and Oceans Canada, for example, the federal agency, can use to better assess and better predict uh, the, the sockeye salmon returns, which, are, which of course have all kinds of implications for the economy of British Columbia and sport fisheries and all these kinds of things. So that's a general example of using basic oceanography to improve not just our understanding of, of the fundamentals of the ocean, but the way that the ocean can support economically viable marine resources. Well, someone who enjoys a good salmon every now and then, thank you for uh, <laughs> monitoring our salmon stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your favorite part of being an oceanographer? I really, really like the field work. I love uh, working on ships and being far, far from land or sometimes close to land, but in very remote places. I've been to the Arctic a number of times. I've been down to Antarctica a number of times. And there are some absolutely stunning places that you simply cannot get to otherwise. So being, being on a ship, for example, amongst the, the fjords of uh, Ellesmere Islands or down off of the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica on a, on a ship is pretty special. I do also really enjoy on those trips the opportunity to work with uh, students and other Scientists from from around the world, for example, it's a our field is a very collaborative field, and there are many many opportunities for people to share their their insights and their experience from many many different fields. That's really good to hear. <laughs> um, uh, you've mentioned something really good about the field. Is there anything uh, you'd like to change about the field, or any um, major discoveries that you think will will rock oceanography in the future? Yeah, I don't know what sort of major discoveries will rock the field. I do know that it's also it, that it is moving forward in terms of incorporating molecular biological information, metagenomic information, understanding the diversity of organisms. But but on the note of diversity, I will I will point out that oceanography, like earth sciences more broadly, is still a field that isn't broadly representative of the diversity of, of people in 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 the world in mm -hmm. North America, Europe, and, and well beyond. So that's, um, that's one area that I think earth sciences have to play a significant amount of catch up so that the, the leaders in the field and the senior scientists in the field better reflect 
the, the diversity of the underlying student and training population. Absolutely. Yeah, that is something that we're, we're working with. Um, now, of course, the, the big news right now is the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's really uh, disrupted everyone's uh, work patterns. Um, has it affected how you're working? You mentioned that you're supposed to be on a boat right now. Are, are you still Yeah, so it's, it's uh, pretty much shut down a lot of field activity. There was, there was a lot of field activity that was planned, and we were gearing up for that. Uh, it's also shut down the transport of some of our equipment that had been down in Antarctica, so that's been stuck in Chile now for a while. I think it's now just starting to move back up north. And uh, access or lack of access to the laboratories has also impaired our ability to uh, continue developing some of these new instruments that we're working on. On the other hand, those students who have collected a lot of field data from the past have had the opportunity to work from home and to continue analyzing it and, and reading papers and, and writing some of their own work. That's good. It's a, it's a good chance to um, catch up on some of those things that we would rather put off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's times. right. That's right. That's a healthy attitude. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Philippe, thank you very much. Um, is there anything else you want to share or? Maybe just to say that I've, I've come to appreciate over the last uh, number of years, almost decades at this point, that the ocean is not a vast, unchangeable system, that it actually is responding to various uh, anthropogenic pressures much faster than we thought it was. And uh, while I still think that there is hope to, um, to recover the ocean and to reverse some of the trends that are impacting it, things like plastics, for example, um, we, sh we shouldn't take the ocean for granted and think that it will always be kind to us and, uh, and to continue to absorb all of our various wastes without any detriment or harm. Excellent. Yeah, it does seem like it's uh, a part of the planet that we haven't really... Um, looked at it in as much depth as other parts. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're really playing catch up um, and bringing humanity up to speed with one of the, the biggest, most important environments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because for most people, most of the time, it was out of sight, out of mind. But that's why the satellites were so important, because they allow us to track these things without actually having to be there. On land, at least in some parts of, of our system, we're sort of here, we're on the ground, literally. And mm -hmm. so it's easier for us to see these kinds of things. But on the ocean, for the most part, that's not something that anyone ever gets to see. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I wish you all the best with your further studies. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.